Dear Heavenly Father, I praise You, Father, for the desire to study the Word. My own desire, Father, and the collective desire of this room. And for that matter, Father, for all the many others who are not here in present, in their physical presence, Father, but will hear this teaching one day, will uh, benefit from it as You see fit. Father, I praise You for the hunger of the Word that is in Your body, in the church. And Father, I praise You for a church facility and a church body here at Wayside that values Your Word and makes opportunity for study available. And I praise You, Father, for the work the Holy Spirit is prepared to do in our hearts by Your Word. Father, by Your Word, so many things can be possible in our lives, Father. By Your Word, we may understand things that the world longs to know. We may be brought into a family, Father, that is a family that will last for eternity, unlike the one we may have here now on earth. Father, it is by Your Word that uh, we are convicted of our sin. We are brought to know, Father, the error of our ways and to understand the, the wide gulf that exists between where we are and where You are, who we are and who You are. All these things, Father, are possible to us if we would devote ourselves to Your Word. And by our doing so, Father, when those miracles in our life happen, we know it is by Your power that they have happened, and therefore, Father, You get the glory that You so rightly deserve. It is such a perfect plan, Father, that You provide us the means to the end that we desire, and in doing so, Father, receive the glory for all that is achieved. And we praise You for that opportunity tonight. Father, now we turn our attention to Luke and to the events that we find in chapter 22 of Luke, and we praise You, Father, that You've given us in that chapter such a powerful reminder of why it is Your Son came and in what He accomplished in His death. And let us be attentive to that tonight as we devote ourselves to it and pray the Holy Spirit would teach us all. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, if you do have a Bible, as I hope, open to chapter 22. We left off at about verse 14. And we're rejoining the disciples and Jesus Himself in a very intimate moment. We have 13 men. They're gathered in a small room in this upper floor of a Jewish home somewhere in Jerusalem on Wednesday night, the week of Passover. And in calendar terms, it's the 14th of Nisan. It's Passover night. And they're preparing to celebrate what was the most solemn meal on the Jewish calendar every year. What memorializes Jewish deliverance from Egypt back in the days of Moses. As they do this tonight, and as we go through the text tonight, they're also going to establish a new tradition. They're going to establish a new tradition for a group of believers that will come in the shadow of Christ and of these men that gather around Him on this day. And yet they also assemble to celebrate a centuries-old tradition. So the old will give way to the new, one foreshadowing the other, both done in the same moment amongst these men. We call it the Last Supper. So let's join them here in this meal in chapter 22, verse 14, where we left off. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's nightfall. It's the time for Passover. Passover, as it was given in the law, was prescribed to begin at twilight on the 14th of Nisan. Twilight means the beginning of the day. Just as we think of the day beginning at the first dawn of light, they're thinking of it as the last of the daylight leaving, but the, the day beginning in the evening under the Jewish way of thinking, twilight for them was the beginning of a day. So night began the day for them, if you will. The 14th of Nisan began in the evening on this Wednesday. And the Passover itself is an event that begins with a family meal that evening, continues into the daylight of the next day, when there are more ceremonies to come, including a national celebration with a single lamb sacrificed at the temple on behalf of the entire nation. But the law had expected that each family would celebrate their own Passover meal with their own lamb on that first night of Passover, on the evening of the 14th. And Jesus is following the biblical pattern here, even if His particular pattern did not in all cases agree with the public way that the Passover was celebrated in his day. Where it differed, it differed because the public had gone astray and he was holding to the true biblical requirements of the Passover. So here he is uh, beginning to celebrate this meal on the night of the 14th of Nisan. It's a meal intended for a small group. The scripture says a family of no less than 10. 
but you could have many more than that in other cases. This is a group of 13. And this meal, which is, go, goes by a variety of names, we call it the Seder sometimes, or a Passover meal, it's a very specific prescribed pattern of activities, all of which work together to memorialize the events of the Jewish exodus from Egypt. The rules that they followed during this meal were actually a combination of things out of God's law, things that God himself prescribed in the law, out of Exodus or out of Numbers. And they were also, it also had rules that had been developed by rabbis over centuries. So the, the combined things you did on a Passover meal, the things you did on a Passover meal were a combination of things that God himself prescribed in the law plus things that rabbis and other uh, religious leaders in the nation of Israel had come alongside the law and prescribed. The combined effect of this law and of the rabbi, uh, rabbi's regulation was to create this remarkable picture of Jesus' work of redemption. You know, it established a reminder of what God did through the Jews in the time that they left Egypt, certainly. That's how Jews saw it, for that matter. But in what it said and in how it said it, it was also a wonderful picture looking forward of what Jesus was to do on the cross. Ultimately, the Passover meal and the symbolism around that meal are fulfilled in Christ, rather than simply a memorial of a past event. It had both sides to it. But we're also going to notice tonight as we look through these verses, not just the ones I've read, of course, but all that follow here in a moment, we're going to see Jesus change some of the practices of how the Seder meal was conducted. In other words, the meal he conducts here is not, strictly speaking, in accordance with the rules and regulations given, in the, given for this meal that were practiced by Jews in his day. He departs from the norm in how this meal was to be uh, practiced. So as we exam examine the, nights of, uh, the events rather, of this night, we're going to have to look not only at what the events were that Jesus did, not just at what he did in this moment, but we're actually going to have to look as well at what the normal would have been. To appreciate how he differed and why he differed, you've got to start with understanding what was supposed to happen. And in the difference, we understand what he was trying to do. So we're going to spend time, now clearly if you know anything about a Seder meal and all that's involved, it's a very elaborate series of events and things that are said and spoken and prayers and song and then more you know, activities. I have no intent to go through all that with you tonight, not because it's not a, a valuable study, but merely because of time. That, that is a study in itself. It could take all night just to talk through the events of the Seder meal and what it means. So my intent is not to try to do that. I want to stay true to what's in the Scripture, meaning what Luke himself chooses to bring to light in his narrative will drive our discussion. But along the way, I need to give a little bit of the background on the Seder meal. So there's, there's one other thought I want to bring to mind here tonight as we look at Luke's account. Each of the Gospel writers carry an account of the Last Supper. It's a major event in Jesus' ministry, so it's not surprising that you see it in all the Gospels. And all four provide a slightly different perspective. Matthew and Mark, in their Gospels, they largely have a parallel structure and a parallel style of narrative. They, they cover largely the same material. Luke's account is similar to the other synoptic writers, Matthew and Mark, but he does rearrange some of the events and he includes more details. So we'll see that tonight. John's account, if you know John's account of the Last Supper, he completely ignores most of the things that the other writers include to include the entire events of the Last Supper itself. John doesn't record any of the details of the Last Supper, the institution of it, the activity around it. On the other hand, he has such a detailed description of the conversation that takes place during the meal that it takes four chapters in the Gospel of John to cover it all. So the Gospel of John has this four-chapter discourse covering just this moment around the table, and yet he includes none of the details that the other synoptic Gospel writers include. That shows you how much different of an approach John took to this same moment. Writing the Gospel after the other ones tells me that his intent was not to repeat, but to give detail that the other writers didn't. So with that background, I just want to make the point I'm not going to try to harmonize the Gospels either. That in itself would be another long study. So the goal tonight is to study Luke, First, for time reasons. Secondly, because that's our focus. Uh, but acknowledging up front that there are some other things you yourself should feel some interest in pursuing, perhaps. Some study on the Seder meal or going back and comparing how the four gospel writers look at the events of this night. All of that would be a very fruitful study on your part if you have a desire to do so. I certainly would encourage you to do it. But going back to Luke now, as Luke's account begins tonight, you see the apostles and Jesus reclining at the table, we're told. 
Now, here's a wonderful opportunity to bring back to mind some of what you've learned with me if you've been studying Luke with me for a while. Because that phrase, the reclining at the table, allows you to bring two issues back to mind that we've studied in prior chapters, and it helps you understand better what's going on in this moment. If you were with me in chapter 7 of Luke, we studied in chapter 7 that when men sit at a table to eat in Jesus' day, they were typically sitting at a table very low to the ground, not like the ones you are sitting at now, for example, but rather a table that was barely seven, eight, ten inches off the ground maybe. And because it was so low to the ground, they were lying on the ground in order to eat at the table. So when we say they reclined at the table, we literally mean they lie down on the ground facing the table in order to eat. And the way they did this was very specific. They would prop themselves up on an elbow, on the left one to be specific, while reclining with their feet at a diagonal away from the table. So the table is in front of them, they're kind of like this on their elbow, their feet are out back, and they eat with their right hand. And because they're at this sharp angle, everyone sort of is sitting around the table, head to the left, feet to the right, all in this little fanned out arrangement around the table. So when we hear that they reclined here, that is the way they were proceeding around the table. If you've seen the paintings of the Last Supper, for example, well, I want you to wipe that image off your mind, okay? You need to, you need to not look at that because... It's a great painting, but it's not a realistic picture of what was going on in the moment. The second thing we need to learn about this table, we can learn from what we studied back in Luke 14, which we studied with this group earlier this year, when we saw the disciples competing with one another for the honored places around the table in that Pharisee's home. And you may remember some of what we taught at that moment. What we learned principally, though, was that there, are, there is honor associated with where you sit. There were places around a table that had, by their very nature, where they were, dictated a certain amount of honor. It was the culture of the day. So, in this scene, that same principle would still have been true. Where they sat around that table said something about the honor they were due, or at the very least, the honor they thought they were due. And Jesus, as the host for the meal, would have had a specific place he sat. We'll look at that a little bit tonight. And then the disciples themselves would have been arranged around that table in a very specific order. We're going to see later in Luke's account tonight when we get there that there are still some men in this group that are burdened with an illusion of grandeur. And that, that illusion of grandeur reflects in where they choose to sit around this table. But looking at the various gospel accounts, we can place the exact position of at least three of the disciples as well as Christ himself, while the rest of them we, we really don't know where they sat. And I want you to begin to build a scene in your mind, the the scene we're going to describe as we move through Luke tonight. I want you to begin to draw a mental picture in your mind, and we'll build this picture as we go. So to begin with, a low table, probably rectangular, probably people sitting on both sides of this rectangular table. And by sitting, of course, I mean this reclining position. The table was probably long enough for all but one or two of the men to sit on it, maybe long enough for all of them, perhaps. But in any event, there would have been a second table as well, a smaller one, rectangular probably. And that smaller table would have been pulled up against the end, one end of this longer rectangular table so that you really have like you might see in a restaurant today where your, your table's not quite big enough, so you pull a second one in on the end and you extend the length of the table that way. The reason they did it in this day, however, was not so much because of space, but because of the procedures revolved, revolving around the Seder meal. You have a dining table on which you eat, And then you have a special table that holds the elements for the Seder. And this table would quite often be pulled up against the larger table for the moments when those elements were needed. And when they weren't needed, for example, when the meal was just being consumed, that smaller table could be pushed back away. Maybe left there, maybe pushed away, kind of depended on the the scene and on the setting. But there were distinct tables. The rules for seating prescribed that the host then would take the first position at the main table. And by first position, I mean if you're looking at the table, kind of like the Michelangelo painting, but imagine a low table. The host would sit at the first position off the end of the main table on the same end where that smaller table would get pushed up against it. So if you're looking at the table, there's the person across from you on the end, not on the, the last position, or if you want, the first position of that main table, right next to the crack between that table and the the smaller one that's now to the right of the host. So that smaller table is to the right of the host. The large dining table extends out to the left of the host and and goes this way. That would be the, the normal position for a host in a Seder meal. The guests would have been seated so that 
to the right of that host, you would have in front of the smaller Pascal table, the Passover table, you would have the youngest. Now, this is not because the youngest was automatically the least honored. It was actually a position of honor. But it was a position of honor always reserved for the youngest because I think that had you not done that, the youngest would have always ended up in the least honorable position. But the youngest had a very specific role in the Seder meal. They often had uh, moments in the Seder meal when they were required to do things or say things. So they were seated next to the host where the host could help them learn the process and could guide them in it. Usually it's a child. So the, the youngest always sat immediately to the right of the host, right in front of that smaller table. And if that meant you're reclining in this this diagonal position, the one to the right of the host would basically be leaning against the, 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 the side of the host, almost leaning into their chest. Immediately opposite that youngest seat on the other side of the Pascal table is the least honored position. And then it would extend most honored to the left of the host all the way around the table, ending with that least honored that sits opposite him on the far side of that Pascal table. So draw that picture in your mind. Now, we know Jesus is sitting as the host. We haven't identified any of the others yet. And in some cases, we will be able to do that. Who do you think the youngest is, just as a passing thought as we move into the text? Well, we know, we know from John's Gospel that he says he was the one leaning against Jesus' breast or against his chest, which would have put him on that right side, would have made him, by definition, the youngest of the apostles, which confirms, is confirmed by church tradition that John was the youngest might also explain why he lived the longest, not only the fact that he wasn't martyred, of course. So we know John is most likely to the right of Christ. We'll deal with the other positions later in the study tonight. So the meal is set to begin, and then Jesus opens with this intriguing statement. He says, he's been eagerly awaiting the opportunity to eat this Passover because he won't eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. You know, I have to imagine when the disciples first heard him say that, they must have expected that to mean that the kingdom was right around the corner. This is an annual event, right? At the very least, they would have expected Jesus to be eating the same meal again in 360 days. And that being the case, they would have assumed he's saying that the kingdom is going to happen sometime in the next year. And that must have got him pretty excited, or at least that might have confirmed what they were assuming or what they were hoping for. If they did think this, it was a misguided thought, to be sure. It was a misunderstanding. Jesus was not promising the quick arrival of the kingdom. You and I can see that just looking back on history. He was promising that the ultimate purpose of the Passover itself was about to be fulfilled in his body. The next time that they were going to feast together, it would become a memorial not to the Jews' exodus from Egypt, the next time this same group of men gathered to eat the Passover, it would have become by that point a memorial to Jesus' death on the cross. Rather than a memorial of the first Passover, this meal was now going to become a celebration of what that first Passover anticipated, which was the ultimate Passover of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. You see, Christ in His death on the cross as the Lamb of God fulfills ultimately what the Passover originally simply pictured. If you will, the Passover that the Jews celebrate is a shadow of the Passover that God accomplished through His Son. The reason there was a Passover given to the Jews was so that God could work through it to demonstrate the the need for propitiation of sin and the way by which it would come. So he is saying here not that the kingdom would come soon necessarily. He is saying that the next time they eat, it will be when this is fulfilled by virtue of the completion of God's plan for redemption. That is, after all, the meaning of Passover, the redemption of his people from slavery to freedom. Not simply in the physical sense of the nation of Israel, obviously, but in the spiritual sense of our being freed from the slavery of sin into the freedom of grace in a life lived with God internally. That's the ultimate fulfillment of Passover. And he is proclaiming to them in this moment that I have eagerly awaited this moment because with it I'm going to inaugurate a new age for the church, for a church that is about to be established, and I'm going to begin the process of confirming what God has always pictured through this event to begin with. I'm beginning the real Passover with you, and as I die on the cross, it will occur. Now, we need to be clear here as well about something else that's happening in this meal. This tradition the church now enjoys of sharing bread and wine regularly in honor of his meal here with the disciples... You need to understand, that is not the same thing as the Passover. 
They're celebrating a Passover meal. Christ's death on the cross is a living example of the Passover. There is a day to come, he says, when he will have another Passover meal with these men, and by extension he would include us, I'm sure, the church in general, and it will happen in the kingdom. What we now do in the meantime, which we call communion or the Lord's Supper, is not Passover. It is something entirely different, which we will study tonight. But ultimately, when we join him in the new kingdom, we will celebrate Passover with him. Passover, not the Lord's Supper, but Passover. So what we do now is a bridge between the Passover he celebrated on that day and one that we will join him in in a future day when he returns for his kingdom. Because there is yet to be a Passover celebration in his day, just as there was in that day. We will sit with Jesus. We will enjoy a roasted lamb. We will eat bitter herbs, if I, if I assume that what he means by Passover is the same thing he meant when he did it with these men. And I can only assume that. And we will remember in that moment, not the Passover of the Jews, but we will remember the Passover of Christ on the cross. So we will have a Passover celebration just as the Jews did in their day and still do today, but its point, its purpose, its memorial will have changed to the ultimate Passover, to the one that he's about to inaugurate. We're going to see that more clearly as we look through the text tonight. Luke 22:17. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. What's interesting about Luke's account here is that Luke basically drops you right into the middle of the Passover meal. Unlike the way some of the other Synoptic Gospel writers approach it, Matthew and Mark, where they give you a little bit more of the background, Luke basically is skipping over a lot of the details of the Seder meal and jumps you to a critical point in the night. For good reason, because his point in his narrative is not to reteach you how a Passover meal takes place, it's to get to the issues of that night. And we're going to know, by the way, as, as we look at the text tonight, we, we're going to see clues, plenty of clues that tell us that, in fact, Luke is dropping us into the middle. This is not the beginning of the Seder meal. But as I started with tonight, I don't want to just drop you in with him. I have to give you a little background on what a Passover was, was actually like so that we can sort of pick up where he's picking up. We'll understand what has already happened in the night before this moment. And that will help us understand now what comes next. Let's take a look, for example, at some of the details of a Seder meal itself, some of the things that would have happened already in the meal up to this point. The meal itself, if you gather for a Seder, you know this already, the meal itself consisted essentially of three courses interspersed by four cups of wine mixed with water, all of which included prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of blessing, uh, uh, songs out of the Psalms, and along the way, other traditions have developed where questions are asked and are answered by people in the room and activities are done, things are hidden and then found later. And there's a bunch of activity that's been added over the years to the way the Seder meal was taking place. In Jesus' day, there was still a lamb, for example, because of the ability to sacrifice it at a temple. But after A.D. 70, when there was no longer a temple, you couldn't eat lamb because you couldn't sacrifice it. So a Seder meal today has no lamb. They substitute unleavened bread for the point at which you'd normally eat the lamb. You had three courses interspersed with four glasses or four cups of wine. The three courses were essentially bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and the Passover lamb itself. Gamaliel, you remember that name? The, the one who taught Paul in the uh, days when he was becoming a Pharisee? Gamaliel said this about the nature of the Passover meal. He said, whoever does not explain three things during the Passover has not fulfilled the duty incumbent on him. These things are the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs. So whoever conducted one of these meals was expected to explain what these three things meant. If you didn't, you really hadn't served the purpose of the Passover meal. The Passover lamb, he goes on to say, means that God passed over the blood-sprinkled place on the house of our fathers in Egypt. The unleavened bread means that our fathers were delivered out of Egypt in haste. The bitter herbs means that the Egyptians made bitter the lives of our fathers in Egypt. This is the basic meaning of those three symbols. Then he goes on to say that every Jew who participated in a Passover meal was supposed to apply what they were doing as if they personally had been one of the Jews who left Egypt. He says it this way, From generation to generation, every man is bound to look upon himself, not otherwise than if he had himself come forth out of Egypt. For so it is, and you shall show your son in that day, saying, 
This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came, uh, came forth out of Egypt. So it is to be the case that a Jew who participates in a Passover meal should see himself literally as one who he himself was in Egypt and God brought him out. That's how you are to view the moment of that meal. So that's the, that's the sense of the meal. That's the basics of the meal. So it proceeded this way. First step of the meal was a specific prayer of blessing. It was a prescribed prayer. And it was said very, very specifically. After that prayer, then you followed with a drinking of this first cup of wine. And as I mentioned already, the wine is mixed 50-50 with water. So there's wine and there's water mixed together in a cup. Everybody has the first cup. Now, the drinking of wine during this meal was not prescribed in God's law, but it had long since become a standard feature of the meal prescribed by rabbinical rule. It was, claimed to, it was cited to be evidence of the Jews' joy in their liberation. It was a symbol of their joy. It's important to note here, and I don't want to pass this by because I think a lot of people are prone to do this in their own mind. It's important to note that not only did Jesus keep God's law perfectly, as we know we're told he did out of Scripture, but he would also observe the prescribed traditions of his day so long as those traditions or rules didn't contradict God's rule, God's law. Christ himself said to obey those in command over you, obey those in authority over you, and he lived that out as well. So long as what they've obeyed or what they've commanded you to do is not in contradiction with what God himself has told you to do, you are obligated to do what they tell you to do. He proves that here. The rabbinical rule that they would have wine is not part of God's law, but Christ observed it. And he would even tell other places, as you may know in the other Gospels, when he would say, don't do as they say, uh, do, but do as they say, speaking of the Pharisees. He would command people, look, they are in authority over you, obey them, because to do otherwise is essentially a disobedient act. But do not do as they do, because they won't even live according to their own rules. And certainly, do not do anything that would contradict God's law or God's specific direction to you in His Word. Because that ultimately reigns over all men's words. But it is also unfair to say, I'm not going to prescribe wine in this, uh, in this ceremony because God didn't come up with that. Well, how do you know? Think about this. What does the wine at the meal now represent? How did God ultimately use the wine of that Last Supper as a symbol of Christ's blood? Do you think that's a coincidence? Do you think the fact that God took that issue, that item from the Last Supper, and turned it into such an important symbol in the church is merely just happenstance? Oh, look, they decided to drink wine. That's convenient. I'll use that now in my Last Supper. Or do you think maybe God knew that that was going to be there, intended that it be there, worked through men, through the rabbis, through the leadership, to prescribe it, and in so doing, arrive at that solution. In other words, God can do anything He wants, any way He wants. He'll put some things in His Word and He'll do other things through men. And in so doing, it still accomplishes purpose. That's why there are pastors over us. That's why there are elders over us. That's why we have teachers. Because it is in God's plan that He would work through men to accomplish His purpose. He established His Word for His own reasons, but beyond that as well, He teaches us through the examples and the words of men. So long as they are not contradictory to God's word, they can still have the force of God's desire in our lives. Though wine wasn't in the law, God expected it in the meal, and it had a purpose in being there. Now, after that first cup of wine, bitter herbs were handed out from this little table. They were dipped in salt water or as well in this kind of a relish mixture, sometimes called sop, S-O-P, in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. And it would be passed around, and, and sometimes pieces of bread as well, dipped in the salt, dipped in the sop, and they'd be eaten at this point in the meal. And, of course, the point here is to symbolize the bitterness of their time in Egypt. In Mark and Matthew's Gospel, we hear of a moment in the meal, at about this point, where the disciples are dipping their herbs in this bowl, in this point in the meal, having had the first cup already, now they're dipping. John, in fact, mentions it as the dipping of the bread in the sop. It's at this moment in the meal. Luke, on the other hand, never mentions it. It's not in Luke's account, obviously. We haven't read it. He never addresses that moment in the Seder meal, which means, as well, he never addressed the drinking of the first cup. So we've had a cup of wine consumed. We've had this dipping ceremony go by. So far, no mention of that in the Gospel of Luke to this point. Now, after the herbs, there is a second cup of wine. But right before that second cup, you would have a song sung by the group, and it's taken out of Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. 
Following that, you'd have a prayer, and then they'd drink that second cup of wine. So this is all taking place, and that's not mentioned in Luke's Gospel. After the second cup, the Seder meal, the Passover meal itself actually begins. All of what we just said is sort of a prelude to the meal. It's part of the Passover meal. It's part of a Seder. But in truth, it's not the meal. You haven't really eaten anything. You're still hungry. Okay? There's still eating to be done. The real meal starts at that point. Now you hand out the herbs again. Now, in herbs here, I want you to think of like little leafy things. Lettuce was considered an acceptable bitter herb. A beet was considered an acceptable bitter herb under the rabbinical interpretation. So this is real vegetables. The, you know, they have the capacity to fill you up, okay, to be food. Also at this point, after that second cup of, of wine, you would be handing out not just these herbs, but also the unleavened bread, which had to be striped, had to be pierced. That was done by the uh, rabbis to ensure that it would not rise, that it was not leavened. You were basically punching holes in it so that if there had been any trace of yeast, it wouldn't allow for the rising of the dough. We now understand that God, through the rabbis, once again, prescribed that so that we have a very clear symbol of Christ in that bread, having been striped, having been pierced. But that wasn't in God's law. That was prescribed by rabbis as well. Unknowingly, they did it, without realizing what they were picturing, even as they made that decision. Finally, you would also have passed out the lamb and eaten the lamb at this point. So all three elements are passed out, all three are eaten. Now, I want to make a a mention here about how they passed out the bread specifically because it becomes very important here in a minute to note how it was supposed to be done. At this point, now remember, after the second cup, we're at that point where the meal is being handed out and people are eating it. The rabbinical rule here was very specific. The prayer that was said over the meal was to follow the breaking of the bread and the handing out of the bread, not to precede it. You were not to say a thankful prayer, then break the bread and hand it out. You were to break the bread and hand it out, then say the thanksgiving prayer that was to be said over the meal. And the reason they said that was because of the way the Jews interpreted the meaning of the bread in that moment. The reason why they were told to do it in that specific order was that the rabbi said, this is bread of poverty. It was Bread that they had while in captivity. Remember, they baked this bread right before they rushed out of Egypt. It was unleavened for that reason. Bread in captivity, the rabbis believe, should be bread broken because the poor do not have the ability, the luxury of a whole piece of bread. The, the, the poor, it said, eat not whole cakes of bread, but broken pieces only. So the prayer was to come afterward, giving thanks for what little I have. The bread of poverty, in other words. So there was a very specific rule for a very specific image being intended there. Then they would eat the lamb. And the next rule to remember is that you could not eat anything after the lamb. The lamb was to be the very last thing you eat at this meal. The reason being was that the the taste of the lamb was was, was supposed to linger on your mouth so that the memory of the meal was the lamb. Not anything else, not the lamb mixed in with other stuff, but what you left the meal with was the memory of the lamb. So the lamb was the very last thing you ate. That's why there was no dessert to this meal, for example. And you're supposed to consume the lamb in total. And that's not supposed to leave any of it behind. If there was, it had to be burned before the next day. Following the meal, then, was a third cup of wine. Things are starting to get kind of fun at this point, right? Everyone's pulled out the third cup of water and wine. And that cup, that third cup, is called the cup of thanksgiving. Having just consumed the meal, we now have a cup to celebrate in thanksgiving what we just consumed. And more importantly, symbolically, the thanksgiving of what God did in bringing His people out of Egypt. This is the moment we're joining the meal in Luke's account. All of what I just described has taken place already by the time we approach the meal in in Luke's account here. So as we go to verses 17 and 18, which I just read, when it says He had taken a cup and given thanks, we're talking here about the third cup, the one of thanksgiving. This is the cup of thanksgiving. Now, there are a number of clues to tell us that. First, the very fact, as I just mentioned, that he says a prayer of thanks associated with the cup. Only one of the four cups was to be consumed with a prayer of thanksgiving. This is very specific. This isn't casual. The words here have a lot of meaning in the Jewish tradition. So there was a very different kind of prayer spoken with each cup, and only the third one had a prayer of thanks associated with it. Secondly, Jesus immediately states after this cup, that he will not drink wine again until he comes into the kingdom. That's a very important statement, because had this been the first cup of the meal, he's basically stating, he's done. 
There's more cups to go. There's the whole meal yet to eat, and he's not going to have any more wine. That would be a very odd, strange thing to say. He's basically stopping the meal before it starts. So it's not likely to be the first cup or the second. And in light of the fact that he gives Thanksgiving, it's most likely the third. It does still raise an interesting point, though, because there's a fourth cup, which now he is declaring he will not participate in, which we'll talk more about here in a minute. The first cup, as I mentioned already, was a cup that opened the meal. It's called the cup of blessing. The second one that they come to later in the meal is called the cup of plagues. The third one, as we said, is the cup of thanksgiving. This fourth one I just mentioned is called the cup of redemption. It is natural to assume he would have participated in the first three, but it is equally natural to assume he would not participate in the cup of redemption until the kingdom, until the feast we enjoy with him in the kingdom. Because I want you to remember, what he's doing now is not a picture. What the Jews have traditionally done at Passover, and and really what they still do today for that matter, is a picture. It's picturing something, right? It's not the literal moment that they're being relieved from their bondage in Egypt. They're not slaves in Egypt. They're thinking back to a day when Jews were slaves in Egypt. They're picturing that by a meal. This element means this, and this element means that. It's a picture. It's a little, you know, a, a symbolic exercise to remember something that literally happened in the past. Jesus is not doing that here. Yes, that's what Passover meant in his day, but in his particular case, knowing who he was and what he had come to earth to do, this isn't a picture at all. This is literal. Because he's going to get up from this table, and the next morning on the 14th of Nisan, he is going to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. There's nothing, there's nothing symbolic in this. This is entirely literal. He is going through the motions of becoming the Passover lamb. He's done that all this week, as we studied earlier in Luke, going through this week of events. He's now about to go through the, the event itself the next morning. He cannot take of the cup of redemption before redemption is in fact true, before redemption takes place. And redemption isn't complete until the last one appointed to the family of God is brought into that family. In the church age, we think of the moment of the rapture as that ending point. And later, as the saints come into the faith in the, in the tribulation, all those who will be assembled into the time of the kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, until that day arrives, he is still redeeming to himself men and women by their faith in him. But in that future day, he will celebrate with those redeemed, and he will celebrate with that cup, the cup that is waiting for that moment. So he pauses here at this point in the meal. He pauses He's done everything the Seder requires up to the point of the third cup. He's had the third cup. The herbs, the bread have been eaten. The lamb has been consumed. And everything proceeded as it would have been expected, including the lamb, up to the point of the third cup. And that's now where we are in Luke's Gospel. Chapter 22, verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is is with mine on the table, for indeed the Son of Man is going as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Look at those verses I read really as two groups, the first two separate from the last two. So looking at verses 19 and 20 for a moment, he says, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and then broke it and distributed it. He then eats it, he says, or he commands them, eat it in remembrance of me. Now, this is completely outside the Seder meal tradition. First of all, it came after the third cup, which means it came after the lamb had been eaten and the meal had been finished, but there wasn't supposed to be anything eaten after the lamb. The lamb was supposed to be the last thing eaten in that meal by by tradition. So he's eating bread here after the lamb. Now, we know this is not the same bread that was eaten earlier. Some might look at this and say, well, wait a minute, maybe this is just the moment when they passed out the bread and ate it. We know this is different because he gives thanks before breaking it. He's not following the tradition for how the bread is to be distributed. We said earlier that if this is the point in the meal where the bread is handed out and eaten before the third cup, it is handed out in broken pieces and then thanks is given. He reverses that here. He takes his meal or this bread, he thanks God for it, says a prayer of thanksgiving, then he breaks it and then he distributes it. This is a very specific change in the pattern that is prescribed for this meal. It tells us that there is a new institution being established in this moment. 
It tells us that Jesus has just created something apart from the Passover meal tradition itself. He's departing. He's moving into new territory, uncharted ground now, in the way he's conducting this meal. Next, he picks up the cup again. He distributes it saying, this is the cup of my blood for the new covenant, which is a direct reference to Jeremiah 31.31, where God tells us through that prophet that he would bring a new covenant, writing it on the hearts of his people, and that that new covenant would be superior to the old. And Jesus is now establishing this as the moment when that new covenant is being realized in the lives of the people he's sitting around. He says, this is the blood of that new covenant. Now, Jesus himself doesn't drink from it. There's no indication in this text that he ever drinks of this cup. In fact, he calls it his own blood, which would suggest that it's not something he would partake of. I don't mean that it's literally blood. I just mean that in the way it symbolizes his blood, you wouldn't expect him to partake of it. You would expect him to hand it out to those who are entering into the covenant that is made by his blood. He himself wouldn't enter into his own covenant. He is the one offering it. It is, it is his blood. Secondly, he doesn't call it what it would have been called if it was the fourth cup of the Passover meal. If this was meant to be that fourth cup of wine, it's called the cup of redemption, not the cup of the new covenant. Again, he's going off into, into uncharted territory with his language and with his pattern of behavior in this meal. These are not Passover tradition behaviors. What he's suggesting here is that the Passover meal that Jesus has been enjoying up to this point in a sense, it's just been suspended. It's been moving along the pattern that's prescribed. We've come to the third cup, had the third cup, and then it's over. There's still things happening in the room, but they're not part of the Passover meal anymore. We've started off in some new direction. The Passover meal that he's engaged in here has been essentially suspended. It's, it's not finished. He's not finishing it by what he's doing. These actions do not complete the meal. And in none of the Gospels, not this one and not the other three. Do you ever see him pick back up with the Seder meal? There's never a point where he returns to the cup of redemption, says any of the required prayers to end the meal. It's like that never happens. Meanwhile, what he did give was this new ceremony to Christians. He gives a ceremony now that we, as the church, are to observe in the interim. Into the interim, while we wait, and here's the important issue I think that some miss as they study this moment. What we are observing now in what we call the Lord's Supper is an interim memorial that holds us over until the day of the kingdom when we arrive in that moment with Christ, at which point I believe this Seder meal picks up again with the fourth cup of redemption. With us now having joined the meal that we couldn't have joined in that moment, right? We weren't alive. Many who came before this moment had died. All those in the body of Christ and all those who are saints to be redeemed, ultimately, Old Testament as well as New Testament, who want to enjoy this opportunity, who would love to have been there, who want to have the meal of redemption with their Redeemer, will be, in, in fact, invited to this very same meal because it's like TiVo. It's on pause. And real life goes by in the meantime with a memorial called the Last Supper, which in a sense reminds us of this moment so that we can look forward to the, to the conclusion of it in our physical presence one day to come. And in that concluding moment, the fourth cup can be drunk when, it, when its meaning now has real meaning. The meaning of redemption is now lived out in the fact that we are all present with our Lord, having been redeemed. How exciting. We have a ticket to that dinner. Like that cruise you paid for six months in advance and every day that leads up to it, you can't wait, you know, or the... Or the vacation, or, or whatever it is, the, the graduation of your last child, as an example. You know, it's this ticket that we now hold. And what we use on a Sunday morning, as we call it the Lord's Supper, communion, what we use that for now is a reminder of how we are now inserted into that pause by faith. We have now joined the family of God, and we now enjoy the benefits of what He was promising in that new covenant. And we will re realize the inheritance that is ours by that promise in that future day. That day of redemption. Moving forward in the text, Luke 22:21, he goes here next. He says, uh, as I mentioned, behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. It starts to make this reference, of course, to Judas. Luke doesn't mention the moment of the betrayal itself. All right? Luke's account never gets to that point where we hear Judas called out by name and he leaves the room. But we know from the other Gospels that the moment that he is called out, the moment when he actually does leave the room, 
occurs before the meal begins. John gives us that most clearly in his Gospel. And by meal here, I remember, I'm talking about the point where you hand out the herbs and the bread and the lamb, the true food part of the meal. He's there at some of the early stages, but it's clear that before they actually hand out the elements and begin the real meal, he leaves the room. He's told to leave at that point. You can read it most specifically in John 13, verse 21. Let me just read you a few of the verses that John covers on this event. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and uh, and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another. (laughs) The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, and we know that to be John. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. Then it goes on. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, talking about John again, said to him, Lord, who is it? Then Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This is that point early in the meal that I mentioned where they're dipping the herbs or the bread and they're handing it out before the meal begins, before that second cup. And it's in that moment that Judas is identified. Now remember the seating arrangement discussion we started with tonight? Now here we see that significance. You see, Jesus, as you know, at that point where we said the host would sit on that one end of the larger table, John to his immediate right, leaning against him, having this little conversation. And based on the description Luke gives, I think a safe assumption is that Peter is in the least honored position. Peter has humbly put himself in this position directly opposite John at the end of that small Seder table. Now, it it makes some sense when you consider that, in sort of an ironic way, Peter prided himself on his humility. As you see the way the Gospel accounts go, Peter clearly had a pride issue. God used it ultimately to make him a great leader in the church after humbling him through a series of, of events in his life. But he always battled with that. And it was very much like Peter to go out of his way to declare his humility, even as he was demonstrating pride. You know, the, the, the phrase I like to use is, I'm, I'm, I'm very humble and I'm proud of it. It, it is in this way that we see that, that, that significance play out. But it's also significant now to place one other apostle. Because when Jesus announced that the, there was a traitor among the group, he says that the way you'll know who this traitor is is, is because it'll be the one... In other gospel accounts, you hear it spoken of in the sense of I'm going to hand this morsel to somebody or to whom I dip in the bowl with, or in this case, where my hand is, whose hand I have, meaning they're touching hands. Well, there's only one position on the table where those things could have taken place. The most honored position. Judas had sat himself down in the most honored position at the table. The one closest to Jesus on his left. Which says a lot about the heart of that man as well, doesn't it? But there's something else more amazing in this account. As I read the verses out of John, there's something much more amazing to this account to me than merely those details of who sat where. Jesus says there is a traitor among the group and everyone wondered who it was. They had no clue. Doesn't that amaze you? I mean, we know Judas was an unbeliever. We know he was a man who never had belief in Christ as his Savior. He was unsaved. He went to the grave that way. Christ described him as a devil when he said, did I not pick you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? In John chapter 6. I mean, there's no two ways about it. This is not a believer who went wrong. Okay, This is a man who Satan indwelled, which is not something that can happen to a believer. Now, you have the Holy Spirit in you. He's jealous for you. There's not room in there for two. So, this is an unbeliever. What amazes me is, as a wolf in sheep's clothing, Satan indwelling him in the whole routine, that he was able to play the part of a believer so convincingly that for two and a half, three years, he lived with these men and went everywhere with them under Jesus' teaching, and no one had a clue. No one knew that this man would betray Christ. And he did so, so convincingly that it has to make me wonder, how well are we going to be, how good are we at, at really knowing within any group we assemble with, where the real belief is. I mean, it's easy to say, I'll know when I see them, but then you have to ask yourself, why didn't these other 11 men know who they were with all this time? 
And it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, when we hear that someone would tell us that potentially there are unbelievers amongst us in our churches. That should not be a surprise to us. In fact, I doubt it is for most, but every now and then I run into people who... I remember an experience in my past with a church and there was a pastor and I was teaching on this point generally and he stopped at one point and kind of had this literally surprised look on his face and he said, you think there are unbelievers in our church? I wanted to grab the guy and go, wake up. <laughs> what are you thinking? Yes, there's unbelievers in every church. You walk in and you're automatically a believer? That's how it works? I mean, what are you thinking? No, of course there's unbelievers in every church. The question is, what do you do about it? What is the response that we have as believers to the fact that there are unbelievers in a church? Well, there is one approach that says I want the church experience to appeal to an unbeliever so as to make them comfortable and stick around. There's a fundamental, we call it seeker sensitive if you've heard that term. There's a problem with that kind of thinking though. It has the desired effect. The problem with it is it works. It keeps unbelievers in your church. It doesn't send them away and it doesn't convert them to believers. You end up with a building full of unbelievers because what you're offering is what they want. You know, to be honest, what an unbeliever wants is not what they need. And what they need is not generally what they want the first time they hear it. Because inherent in the faith process is a coming to a recognition of our own unworthiness before God, of the fact that we are sinners, of the fact that we are due judgment. A conviction of sin is a necessary predecessor to an establishment of faith in the heart. No one likes that, and few sit for it. But it is God's appointed way to salvation. You have to know you need what you need before you get it. And if you tailor the experience in a church so that it satisfies the unbelieving heart, you're not going to have a hope to move it from where it is to where it should be. And God does that work, we know that. But He elects to do it, He chooses to do it through His Word so that He would gain the glory for it. When we replace the word with our own methodologies, hoping for the best, why would he honor that with the result of salvation? To do so is to deny the value and power of his word. To, to agree with you that you have a better solution. Why would he do that? He says he won't. So, on the one hand, to see this kind of example lived out in the apostles teaches us that it is possible that an unbeliever be amongst us. It should remind us that the call of a Christian in Matthew 28 or in the, the idea of the Great Commission is to go forth with the Word of God such that it would convict and bring faith and leave the answer as to who will believe and who won't to God Himself. To not worry about the numbers. To not get caught up in, I did it successfully today because I managed to pick the right words and therefore I need to adjust my methodology tomorrow. No, you have the methodology. It was given to you by God in His Word. Stay with that. Let God do with it what He will. And in light of how we saw Judas's life turn out, we have to understand that it is certainly within God's plan that not all come. That it is not the case all believe. So to make that our goal is to set ourselves on the wrong goal. Our goal is to be obedient in carrying the message and leave it to God to decide how it's received. To be the ones who bring the good news. Ephesians 4.13 says, We are to do this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see the goal? The goal has nothing to do with how many you convert. The goal has everything to do with how mature you become. We carry the message as the church for our own benefit because of what it does for our sake that we are obedient in that role and not because we have some checklist of how many people we're you're going to save today. That motivation is good, but the goal can't be that. Because it leads us to do the wrong things in a misplaced desire to bring men to faith. Back to the scene in John. After Jesus' statement, we hear Peter gesturing to the one reclining, the one across from him. So Peter, as we said, had taken this lowest place at the table. And he asked John to find out what Jesus meant. Luke says that the one who will betray him has his hand on the table. That's the one that we said now had to be uh, Judas, the one who has taken this place of honor. But it also means that at this moment, knowing that it happened at this moment, at this point in the meal, it means Judas left the room, which he did at this point, according to John, without participating in either the Passover meal itself nor the Lord's Supper that God anointed, that He initiated after the, supper, after the Passover, the, the communion meal itself. And it was to be that way because, of course, he could not share in those promises. Remember, this isn't a symbolic meal. This is a literal meal. God is literally performing here a, uh, a measure of grace 
He is literally giving a dispensation of grace. Judas couldn't participate in that. As an unbeliever, he had no, nothing to share in what was going on. So he's intentionally meant to get up and leave early. As a passing note for the sake of time, I won't give this much more effort, but in how we conduct the, the meal we now call the Last Supper, we should observe a similar restriction based on what Judas has happened to him here and what we know Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The meal we now call the communion meal should not be shared with unbelievers. It's not a meal for someone who does not believe in Christ's propitiation on the cross. Not to shame them over that, not to make them feel uncomfortable, but it is the case that they are not to partake in something they have no part in until the day comes that they would believe in the gospel. Then they are a part of the family and welcome to join. Jesus' identification of Judas then now leads to what is one of the most bizarre scenes imaginable to me. And we'll finish with these verses, but this is, this is just an unimaginable scene for me. I try to imagine it, and I have a hard time kind of playing it out. It almost seems like a Monty Python skip, the way it had to play out in real life. Luke 22:23, And they began to discuss amongst themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Why is this so bizarre? Well, think through it just for a moment with me. The disciples are at first here talking about who will betray Jesus. Now, that makes perfect sense. He's just made a very provocative statement. Someone here is going to betray me, and that totally throws them off, and now they're all talking about it, right? Which means the conversation would have been about who was capable of being so low, of being you know, so despicable. That, it's got to have that sense to it, right? I wouldn't do that. Is, who here is, you know, is he capable of doing that? You know, you're thinking in your mind, who's that low, Right? And then somehow, incomprehensibly, the conversation does this 180-degree swing from who's lowest to who's highest. I don't know how you get there. I don't know how you work that conversation around to that point. I, I tried to imagine a couple of examples about how you might do that. You know, there's some conversation about who is low and dirty and no good and so on. Maybe Simon, you know, he looks at Bartholomew down the, the end of the, the row and he just says, maybe it's, you know, he never cleans his beard. He's, he's always worried me. I've always had a concern about that man. You know, and then Bartholomew Bart's got to defend himself. He looks at the other end of the table, looks up at Peter or something and says, well, you know, Peter, he's always bragging about his name, you know, the rock this and Peter's the rock and Peter rocks and, you know. So, you know, he starts knocking on Peter maybe. I'm trying to figure out how this is going to happen in real life. Peter then, you know, he's got to defend himself. He, he says, I you know, can't help it if Jesus gave me a better name. And, you know, besides, I can't be the traitor because I've got to be the leader of the church. You know, I'm going to be the greatest. I mean, maybe that's how it happened. I don't know how you make that turn. And it's important to understand what they were arguing about. I do not believe they were arguing about who would be the most effective minister. You know, by greatest, they're not sitting around arguing about which of them is going to accomplish more in ministry for Christ. Which of them will have the better legacy as an apostle or a disciple. Uh, you know, it's easy to make that assumption that they're just talking about their effectiveness in ministry. I don't think that's what they thought at all. They're assuming the kingdom is tomorrow, right? They're not assuming there is a 2,000-year-plus period of, Christ, of, of church history which they are going to found. And they certainly don't appreciate yet the trials that come with that role. In fact, you just have to look at the word. The word in the Greek here for greatest is megas. You know, we use the same word mega to mean big. But it's in that same sense here. Biggest. As in, who's going to be number one? Who's going to be the big cheese? Who's going to have the most authority, in other words? Greatest here does not mean greatest in terms of reputation or accomplishment. It means greatest in terms of authority. Who's number one in the food chain? Who's highest on the ladder? That's the discussion that's taking place. Very specific one. And in response to that kind of thinking, Christ turns to them and He says, you know, the Gentiles, they have kings too. They have leaders. And those leaders, they lord over their people. Now, here's, here's a little bit of insight. You can, you, you can tell when Jesus is really upset at somebody, particularly one of his disciples, when he compares them to Gentiles. <laughs> you really don't get much worse than that in Jewish thought. You, you are Gentiles were dogs. And to be compared to a Gentile was about as hard a rebuke as he could give them in the moment to make a point. He says, you know, that group of people, they have leaders. 
You know, meaning, there's nothing particularly noteworthy about being a leader. There's plenty of ways you can be a leader. You know, if your goal in all of this is to be the head honcho, to be a leader, well, don't waste your time with us. Do it with the Gentiles. It's an easy thing if that's all you seek. There's nothing godly about desiring leadership for the sake of ruling over people. And as proof, he reminds them that even these ungodly Gentiles seek after the very same thing, after leadership, after an opportunity to rule over each other. So it's not inherently godly. In other words, if they had some perception in that moment that somehow they were expressing godliness because of their ambition, if they somehow had twisted it in their mind to think that they were showing Christ they were a godly sort and they were on his team and they were fired up for him and they showed that because they really wanted to be a leader, if that was their way of showing it, he's saying, look, there's nothing godly about that desire. Not in and of itself. The Gentiles share your desire. So it does not equate to godliness. And then he says, when Gentiles rule, they lord over their people. That word for lord there literally means they act as a master over a slave. That's what he's saying. These leaders, these people in, in society, says they use their position of leadership to gain something for themselves at the expense of those they rule over. And everyone in, the, in those disciples knew exactly what he was referring to when he said that because they had grown up in a Jewish culture that was lorded over by Roman Gentiles. They knew what it meant to be lorded over. And then he adds in verse 25 that the Gentiles, when they rule, they add insult to injury by portraying themselves as the people's benefactor. This is such a crushing thing to say because it, it is basically a statement of hypocrisy. You know what a benefactor is in the context of someone who lords over other people? This, this, the word benefactor in the Greek, it literally means a doer of good. But it's an ironic statement because they're not doing good. It's the exact opposite in reality. What they're actually doing is they set themselves up to be your benefactor, your doer of good, by taking everything you have and then giving some back. See, I'm your benefactor. I'm doing good to you. I'm giving... Well, wait a minute. You took it all to begin with. It was mine before you took it from me. The Jews and the Romans. The Romans were the benefactors of the Jews. We're keeping the peace. We're giving you your portioned allotment of food or of... You know, we're helping you in defense of your city. We didn't need your help. We were doing fine without you. Now we're slaves to you. It's in that sense that they were ruling over them while at the same time calling them benefactors. And Jesus points out that, that example, that, that real-life example from their everyday experience to illustrate what they are not to be. The church, and these men, of course, as the future leaders of the church, has to be different than the world. The unbelieving world, the world that we live in, shares, for the most part, the same principles he was equating to the Gentiles. A principle that says... I'm going to get for me what is mine, and I'm going to, the higher the ladder I go, the more is in it for me, and the little people are just there to keep me up on the top. There's a sense of that. Even if people don't speak that way, leadership in the modern age revolves around that kind of thinking, by and large. The one who is greatest, Christ says, is not the one who lives that way, but in the economy of the church, it is the one who serves the rest. Matthew's version of this same account uses the word doulos, which we know means slave, to describe a leader. A slave is the leader. The world's model of leadership is like a pyramid, right? With the one on top ruling over the structure that lives and exists to support that person or that person's authority in the company. The way the church is to be led is an exact opposite of that. Take the pyramid, flip it upside down, put it on its point, and the leader is the one at the bottom. And by service to the rest, that leader is doing their role of appointed leadership. It's the counterintuitive role of leadership. It's not the way we think of leadership, but in the way God established it in the church, it is the way the church should operate. Whoever is self-appointed or elected to be leader of a group of people in the church illustrates, demonstrates, lives out that leadership by a role of slave and servant to the body. And if their role ever sort of twists around and next thing you know it's being lived out like this, you've got a problem. What you've got is a corporation a non-profit status. And what you have instead of a leader of the church is a CEO. And what you have instead of the church building up for the work of ministry is the ministry build up to, to satisfy the, the, the egos of those on top. And there are many churches you can probably think of in your own experience that have operated exactly like that. Whether they started the right way and ended wrong or whether they always were wrong to begin with, who knows. But the biblical model of leadership as Christ gave it to these apostles was to reverse the thinking that was at the core of their argument. Who is going to be on top? 
He says, you want to know who's on top in this room? Well, they knew the answer to that. It's Jesus. And what am I doing in this room? In John's Gospel earlier, he had gotten up and washed their feet. In John's Gospel earlier, he had served them the food. This is the man who is playing the servant role to these men, and they knew exactly his importance. And yet, they never picked up on the fact that he would take that role time and time again in his own ministry. He says, those who would serve one another are to be the leaders in the church. That's the model of leadership. And as a final point, we certainly don't elevate into leadership those who would seek to use it in the way these disciples sought to use it in their day. Give me the reins of power because, boy, I've got plans. Or uh, I can't wait for the status. You know, one of the comments I make to churches on occasion is, if you want to give your pastor a reserved parking space, okay, but just make sure it's the farthest spot from the door. (laughs) And if they park there, you've got a good pastor. If they refuse to, you might have a concern. It's just one example, but there's plenty more like that, where the heart should be tested by their willingness to put the needs of the body before their own in all that they do. That's the role of servanthood. If they wanted a lot of money, they could join a corporation. If they wanted a lot of power, they could have become a CEO. They could become a Gentile. There's plenty of opportunities. In the sense of this story, they could become the Gentile that lords, if that's their goal. They don't need the church to do that. Let's end in prayer. Thank you for your extra patience tonight. I wanted to make sure we covered that material, but we'll be back in chapter 22 next week. Father, I thank you so much for the night, for the patience of those who've come to listen and for the opportunity to hear your spirit in the words that were taught tonight. I do pray it was your spirit who taught, Father, that the teaching was according to your will. And as men, Father, we make mistakes. I know different. And so I pray that those things that were spoken tonight that may not be according to your will and and in line with the truth, I trust you, Father, to correct those mistakes in the hearts of those who've heard and to bring them the truth in your own way. And in all that we do here, Father, we pray that it would be a humble service to you, not just in those who've taught and helped prepare the night, but in those who've heard as well, because service, Father, will result from all that we've learned in one way or another. Let us be good, honorable, humble servants according to your word. And if it be your will, Father, I pray we would come back into this room next week to continue this study. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.